Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 305 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. How's it going? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to quickly shout out about Ruby Remote Comp. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about Rails one or 5.1.0. Um, and Dave, you put together a video on Drifting Ruby about this. You want to kind of give us a, a thumbnail sketch and get us going on, on what we're discussing here? Yeah, Rails 5.0, it's a huge update. You know, I really think that this is one of their bigger releases that they've done, you know, other than the major versions. Uh, I mean, they've included so many different things as well as deprecated a lot of different methods. One of the biggest things, you know, that I know that the community that we're kind of moving towards or the community just kind of what they have seemed to like is, you know, a lot more JavaScript front end stuff. And now with the additions of stuff like Yarn and Webpack, it makes it a lot easier to start off a uh, vanilla Rails application with this stuff kind of baked in and included. You know, and they've added a lot more things I'm excited to talk about today. And I think it's a great move forward without compromising the, you know, what Rails stands for and it's in uh, overall integrity, you know, to kind of give you the option to choose the direction that you want to go while still maintaining the uh, uh, convention of configuration or convention over configuration. Yeah. So um, one thing that I just want to talk about here for a second is uh, going back to that, that idea around JavaScript and that front end JavaScript um, you know, given that this is a web framework and the direction that the web is going, I mean, this is really exciting that they are moving in this direction where you can now actually pull in packages for web applications and then, um, you know, use something like Webpack to, to build stuff. Um, I always felt like the asset pipeline worked, but it was a little bit clunky. And it's nice that they're just adopting some open source software that uh, pretty much uh, a lot of the rest of the web uses and then getting all the goodies that come with that. Yeah, absolutely. And Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. And then getting all the goodies that come with that. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea with Yarn and one of the really cool things about it, and for the listeners who don't know, Yarn is just a, uh, it's kind of like Bundler for JavaScript, where it's just a package manager. So you can easily install other packages or JavaScript libraries into your Rails application, like Full Calendar or any other kind of uh, JavaScript, JavaScript library you know, with these. And you can also use it to maintain and update the different versions. So they've definitely made it a lot nicer than having to go out, find that library source, pull it into your vendor assets, and then, you know, redo everything, you know, or you know, then run your system tests. They made it much more integrated now, and that's what I really like. I haven't quite drank the Webpack Kool-Aid yet. Um, it's still kind of iffy. I still have some issues with it, but, you know, that's neither here nor later, but we'll see what happens with it. I really like Webpack. Um, I've been using it with Angular stuff for a while, and it it's it's pretty awesome. Um, you know, you just pull in what you need, and then you run it, and it, it seems to generally work. I mean, there are a lot of config options. Um, you know, there's a huge surface area to the API, but ultimately... It, it has uh, plugins for pretty much everything you need to do with it. So um, it's a nice way to go there. Um, I'm curious, though, I haven't used Yarn. Um, so what's the difference between Yarn and NPM? I don't know if there is a um, any kind of major difference that you need to... Uh, well, I guess Yarn is maybe just the uh, front end or kind of the interface for using NPM. You know, 
I'm not really too much of a JavaScript guy to really be able to notice the dif- or know the difference. But on the change log or on the uh, blog post that they have, you know, the first point is to manage JavaScript dependencies from npm via Yarn. So it sounds like Yarn is kind of like your bundler, and npm is um, just kind of the back end side of things. Yeah, but npm includes dependency management. And so that that's kind of where I'm. It does. It does. Which is kind of strange. You know, now it's not until someone actually like calls something out or says something. Do I really stop and think like, yeah, what is going on there? But, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and honestly, to date, uh, the Rails core team has never failed me. Uh, and while I do not agree with everything that they do in some instances, uh, I think for the most part, when they do introduce a big new technology uh, into their core uh, core Rails app, that it's usually pretty solid and good. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, there are some areas that I just... They, they do stuff and I'm just like, okay. Um, but then in other areas, you know, they, they generally have the right of things, um, you know, until I move on to something else. So one, one example is CoffeeScript, for example. I loved it when they adopted CoffeeScript, but I felt like there have been other options that are at least better for me that have come out since then, uh, primarily ES6 and TypeScript. And... So, you know, as I move away from that, sometimes it's not as easy to integrate some of those other options in. And that's one of the things that I'm really excited about with using something like Webpack is that Webpack, like I said, has all those plugins. So integrating that stuff is just a matter of pulling in the TypeScript plugin and then making sure that the Webpack build does what it's supposed to do. Yeah, and I think one of my main issues with Webpack, with how they have it integrated into the Rails application right now in this beta, or I guess now it's a release candidate one at the time of this recording, is that you have to run a separate uh, instance or a separate server to actually be able to serve out those assets. And I think that's kind of, you know, uh, especially when you start working on a much larger application where you need to be testing your background job. So, you know, maybe you have Sidekick running, then you have a Redis server, then you have know you know of course your database server running your rails application now you have an extra component where you have to have the webpack uh service running to serve your assets it just seems you know uh just one more thing that i have to worry about almost and that's kind of why i I, at least in rails 510 i haven't completely bought into uh webpack yet yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, it works behind the scenes. I haven't actually tried to integrate any of these things into it, but it appears to work primarily behind the scenes. So, you know, I, I don't know how much configuration or you know, know-how you need with Webpack to, to make things work, at least in the, the basic case. Um, you know, as, as you want to configure it to do other things, I mean, you had to fiddle with Rails to make it do ES6 or... TypeScript or something else anyway, and it, it didn't always work seamlessly. So, you know, you may run into the, some of those same issues, but at least Webpack is designed to handle that stuff. Yeah. And I guess from that perspective, you know, it does just work within Rails 5.1.0. You know, if you run the uh, the Webpack uh, dev server. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, yes, it's a lot less trying to tinker and to get it to work. You know, you don't have to worry about your initializer files or any kind of configurations. You know, you just run the server and it works. So from that perspective, you know, it is uh, definitely much, much nicer. Uh, I guess I just, you know, kinda, I kind of kind of one at all <laughs> yeah so. no i totally understand the other thing i thought was interesting though was that you can actually do a, a webpack equals on, on your option so dash dash webpack equals angular or view or react and it'll actually pull in all the stuff that you need there yeah that is really cool. So I think that's going to, uh, for those who are still, you know, really sold on the action view, I think this is going to kind of be a case where if it's that simple to get up and running with Vue or React uh, or Angular within a new Rails application, that might be a push for more developers to try out these JavaScript uh, front end frameworks. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
And I mean, the way that I've, I've done Angular in the past is Angular has its own CLI. And so I would just generate a separate Angular uh, app and then it would run all its stuff. And then I would just tell it how to talk to a Rails backend. So the fact that I can actually spin up a, an Angular front end and a Rails backend and kind of have it all automatically talk to each other, because it was kind of tricky sometimes to make it talk to the backend the way I wanted. Um, yeah. This makes it really seamless for that. Yeah, and then you have everything kind of in one nice uh, repo. You don't have to worry about managing two separate yeah. things or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, it is pretty cool. You know, um, one of the previous Ruby Rogue episodes, I kind of said I had this dream about Vue.js. And, you know, I still have that uh, conviction to try it out. I haven't had time yet. I've been busy building a deck, uh, you know, like an actual wooden deck, which is a whole nother story. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it all comes down to power tools, man. Uh, but, yeah, so... Yeah, the whole JavaScript stuff that came in Rails uh, 5.1.0 has been pretty amazing. You know, and also dropping the support or the default uh, jQuery as a dependency, you know, I think is pretty huge, especially if you're trying to really get to hit, you know, hit that sub 100 millisecond response or even the first the first request, you know, loading up those assets, you know, if you don't need them in there, then reducing that uh, asset JS file uh, file size, you know, can definitely be pretty big. I don't know what jQuery comes in as a uh, minified size, but uh, or I guess minified and gzipped, but you know, it's still uh, some overhead. So having that not as a default dependency anymore is pretty cool. Yeah, that that made me happy. Um, I mean, and it's funny because I remember when I first started doing web development. Um, it was shortly before, shortly after jQuery had come out. And so we were doing stuff with prototype JS and then, you know, moved to jQuery and it was, oh, this is so nice. And it's funny to me now that it's like, oh, yay, I don't have to use jQuery anymore. Yeah, I remember the prototype days and you know, maybe that's when I started to uh, really hate uh, JavaScript just as a whole. You know, I had some bad, bad experiences with prototype back in the day yeah but uh it's you know it's getting better and better and you know as you pull in some of these frameworks like react or angular or Vue, um they they handle a lot of the dom uh cruft the stuff that you don't really need to know or don't need to want to know um for you and they do it without jquery and so if you're pulling in an angular or react or Vue, um it just you know it, it does the right thing for you and so, yeah, not having that monolithic library, because it, it is a fairly large library. Um, you know, it does cut down on that bandwidth that you're taking up. And the other thing is, is that um, by not loading a large file like jQuery or jQuery UI into your application, um, especially on mobile, which accounts for more and more traffic on the web these days, you know, it just makes it that much faster and easier. And so that, that was definitely a big plus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you're not minifying and gzipping at the, uh, you know, your assets, you're definitely doing something wrong there. Yeah. You know, at least as your uh, CSS and JS files go. So, I mean, that right there is going to be your biggest bang for the buck, and it's free to do too. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is that if you're using Webpack, um, it has plugins for tree shaking, um, and and that'll also make your your deliverable smaller. I'm not sure if you're familiar with tree shaking, but is that kind of like a uncSS for JavaScript where it just removes the unused functions? Yeah, basically. Um, okay. So yeah, it's, it only works if you're using an ES six variant. So ES six or TypeScript, um, but it can go in and because of the way that the modules are written and loaded, um, it'll go through and it'll actually pick out all of the different pieces that you're not using. Um, so it, it, as far as I know, it doesn't work or doesn't work well with ECMAScript 5. And so, you know, CoffeeScript compiles to ECMAScript 5. It doesn't go through an ES6 system. And so it won't work out as well. But there's a system out there called Rollup. There's a JavaScript Jabber episode on, on Rollup, and it explains what tree shaking is and how it works. Um, and so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But, uh, yeah, so 
I mean, again, coming back to Webpack, there are all these options you can pull in, and it it has a couple of tree shaking plugins that you can hook up, and it'll reduce that compiled JavaScript file size that much more. That's cool. Yeah, I'll have to look into that more. Um, cause I always like, you know, trying to get my application to perform as fast as possible, even on the first request. And that definitely sounds like, you know, you can kind of almost blindly just pull in the, you know, whole, uh, bootstrap, uh, JavaScript library, and then just kind of have it automatically trim down what's not being used. Yep. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, there cool. are a lot of these frameworks that like bootstrap or jQuery or, uh, you know, Zurb foundation or some of these others that, yeah. You know, if you're not using all the features, why load them up to the user? You know, why make them, you know, pay to wait for that file to download? Yeah, so we're not on we're not all all in uh, gigabit connections now. Come on, it's 2017. That yeah, should be a problem, especially with my <laughs> phone, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just waiting for uh, uh, the new. A new version of cellular networks come out where we do have like insanely fast speeds. <laughs> yeah. So, well, don't know what I'll do with it, but can't wait. <laughs> well, and I think it's it's funny because you know to wax a little bit maybe political for a second. A lot of people are, are you know up in arms one way or the over think over things like net neutrality, and I think honestly, if if it was kind of ubiquitous wide internet pipe kind of access. I think a lot of those concerns would go away because you would just you would never max out to the point where you're actually coming up against somebody else using up bandwidth. And so, yeah, it just, you know, oh, you're going to make whatever service faster. Well, you know, prioritize away because, you know, unless you're throttling somebody, it just won't matter. Yeah, no, I agree. And then I don't know uh, all the shady corporate stuff that goes on. I don't know. I hate it. You know, like some some companies, I won't name them just because I don't know for absolutes, but I heard that they will uh, uncap your bandwidth. Uh, so give you like your full speed on like speedtest.net, but then throttle in other areas. I'm like, that's that's just such yeah. crap. Why would you do that? That's not nice. Yep. <laughs> anyway, I, I let us on to a tangent and there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of stuff to talk about on Rails 5.1. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I agree with you on that. Um, so, yeah. So, we've talked a lot about the JavaScript stuff. Is there anything else related to the front end that we should, you know, hit on this? Or should uh, we move on to another area? Well, uh, they did unify form tag and form four. Uh, they kind of bundled it Yay! all into form with, which is... Uh, kind of cool you know it kind of takes a guesswork of you know do i need to use form tag or form four in these situations personally i use simple form uh simple forms for most of my things so it's not it doesn't really matter too much but i'll i still find myself using form tag for something like a search where i'm not actually referencing a model with uh that form but uh i think you know just having you know a bit cleaner code and stuff it's definitely a cool thing yeah, I agree. And and for me, it's like, look, I want a form and let me just tell you what the form is about instead of, yeah. uh, oh, form for, form with, uh, which one's which, or form for and form <laughs> tag. Tag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that that definitely is a welcome change. You know, also having the uh, parameterized mailers. You know, I think that's just going to make the whole uh, mailing pipeline just a uh, much much more dry and cleaner um so have you read up on that much um i looked at it i didn't quite see how to call it as opposed to so calling it with parameters yeah so you know one you can reduce the number of parameters that you're requiring for each mailer that you know you're going to send out and you can have a before action which will right. basically set the instance variables for all of the different common things but uh, instead of having to pass in the parameters from your controller or your background job into the mailer it has access to the parameters oh that's so, where it's pulling the params from that was the part i wasn't clear on yeah uh so that's uh that's c- kind of cool you know um 
I do see where it kind of opens it up to where you can make some more mistakes or get some errors uh, in your app that you wouldn't normally because you were explicitly setting uh, the parameters. But I think it's, um, you know, it should be an interesting move forward. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, it's, I mean, just simplifying that much. And then, like you mentioned, the, the before actions where it's like, hey, look, you know, I've kind of got some um, some default things or I know I'm going to want it to set up off of the parameters for all of these or most of these um, different mailer options. I mean, it, that just simplifies a ton of stuff. Because then the stuff that I need to do on setup for everything, yeah, it just happens. And then the stuff that is different, then I just run that in the method and then tell it which template to run. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my biggest gripe with uh, the this release candidate, uh, 510, is just all the deprecations that they've done. You know, while I can see it's important to clean up some of the legacy code in the Rails core, I think that this uh, this release is going to break a lot more applications uh, than, you know, even upgrading to Rails uh, 5 from 4. You know, um, there's just a lot of gems that were using deprecated methods and stuff that I think we're going to have some issues upgrading even from Rails 5 to 5.1.0. So if I had to pick one uh, grievance of the whole release, that would be it, you know. I wish they had some kind of better better way of moving off the deprecated uh, methods over into maybe a separate gem or something where you could still access them so you can slowly upgrade to a new version. But, you know, they kind of just took it away and now you have to go back and fix gems or submit pull requests for other gems, which isn't a bad thing to keep, you know, help keep those maintained. But it's kind of a annoying, annoying bit. Yeah, well, maybe somebody will write a gem that puts them all back and then throws warnings or something at you. Yeah, there you go. But, yeah, <clears throat> or maybe you can load the gem and then, you know, make some kind of setup call that says um, start throwing the errors after this date or something. I don't know. But, it, it yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of those are things that I use, too, you know, like the render text and, you know, some of the other, you know, things that they pulled out of there i was just like wow that's that's kind of been core and been there forever yeah yeah which i, I can see you know a lot of their reasons for deprecating a lot of those but still to have some kind of fallback plan to where you can slowly migrate you know so at least you're on the latest version of rails you're just still using some not even security uh, related issues, but you know you're still using some of the old deprecated methods just because you haven't had time to update a gem or uh, your application, but you're still getting the latest security fixes and you know all that stuff. If you're coming from a more unsupported version of Rails or something, is there a full list of the deprecated methods? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, or at least, you know, if you go to the change logs for each one of the different um, main packages, you can, you know, kind of see them in the change log. You know, that might be a good list to compile just so you can easily search through it. But yeah, maybe I'll have to write a blog post. Yeah, that could be interesting. Um, but anyway... <laughs> um, I'm just I'm looking through the the um, the change log just to see, and most of these are things that they've added or changed as opposed to things that they've pulled out. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not seeing a list of things that were actually deprecated. And so, yeah, I don't I don't know. It'd definitely be interesting to to see. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of stuff removed from uh, action support. So, yeah, well, and that's going to affect more things than just Rails because there are a lot of systems out there that use active support because they just assume that, you know, people are used to the Rails stuff and so they want all those goodies in Ruby yeah. in general. And so other gems and other systems pull that in. So, so that should be interesting. But yeah. Yeah, and, uh, I've been... 
Hey everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Conf. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. That should be interesting, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, I've been playing around with Capybara for a bit, you know, to kind of shift topics, but uh, there's... Um, uh, oh, the system, system test. test within Rails 5.1.0, which is really cool. No, oh, I really they, like that. Yeah, I, I looked at that. Um, I watched your Drifting Ruby video on it, too, and you kind of showed it off. Man, that... I mean, if you've written Capybara, you know, there's not a whole lot that's changed. But just the fact that it all sort of works and you don't have to go and, you know, include Capybara and then include the driver and then jump through all these hoops and then, you know, configure our spec and then make it all play nice. You know, it just kind of all does the right thing. That That's super nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the more exciting things that, you know, I found in Rails 5.1. Um it actually makes me kind of want to write tests for my applications now. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm you so bad write about tests. writing tests. I'm so bad about it. Uh, you know, I, I do on the mission critical point of things, but as far as any kind of acceptance, uh, acceptance tests with, you know, like Capybara or, you know, like a Selenium driver to test the app, I really don't do that too much. Um, yeah, it's more just unit tests or R specs, uh, not really actually pulling up a driver, loading a web page, and like kind of step through the process. So, you know, yeah, I don't know. What are your What are your thoughts on that? I'm like so bad about writing tests because you know it's like, all right, I have two hours. I want to get this feature in. You know, okay, I'm done with the feature. Crap, out of time. Don't have time to write the. Uh, uh, acceptance test for it. So see, I'm, it's I, almost kind of an afterthought sometimes. So as far as the system level tests go, I mean, for those, I generally just write the happy path tests because they take longer to run. And so I'm typically not going to run my systems tests as part of my, um, my regular test suite. I usually just run the, um, the unit tests and then any integration tests that I need. Um, and usually those integration tests, if they're, you know, uh, internal system to internal system, then I just run them. And if they connect to some external system, then I'll run VCR and that way those are fast as well. Um, but yeah. then when it comes down to the actual, um, you know, hit it and run through it, you know, it, it essentially has to virtualize a browser and it's just not as fast. It, and yeah. so with those, I'm not running them all the time. And so it's like, if it's not mission critical, it typically won't get one of those system tests, but yeah, for me, it's just the approach of, hey, what is this supposed to do? And I I like to write my test first because a lot of times I'm looking at it, and I'm like, okay, how do I do this? And so if I can start to characterize it a little bit and say, um, if I put these things in, then it should have these side effects and these outputs. Um, and that's typically where my tests start. And then it's, okay, so I need something that does this piece of the stuff you know, this piece of the process. And so I'll jump in and write that part that actually does that part of the process. And it's the same thing, right? Given these inputs and these uh, existing conditions outside of the, the method, you know, what are the side effects and what are the outputs? And then I yeah. can just test all those things and I just work through it that way over and over and over again. Um, but yeah, um, I, I know people that write, the system tests for everything. Um, but typically what they do is they run that on their CI build before they deploy. Yeah. And then they also parallelize their tests so that if it's an hour's worth of tests to be run and they have four cores, then it can run it in 15 minutes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, man, writing, writing tests, it, it is actually kind of fun. You know, and it kind of gives you that good fuzzy feeling that, you know, yes, the application is working as I intended. So, 
you know, tests are good. Yep. And system tests, you know, with the capybara, I'm really excited to uh, play 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 with that a lot more. Yeah, but the, just the fact that they cleaned a lot of that stuff up, so you don't have to bang your head against the wall. That was just nice. Yeah, absolutely. One other area that I saw that I was super excited about were the encrypted secrets. Um, I just, I keep, you know, you, you hear about these websites getting hacked and then you put all your secrets into the secrets.yaml, but it's a plain text file that you deploy to your server. Or yeah. if you're not doing that, then typically what you wind up doing is you either wind up putting it in environment variables, which if they can get onto your machine, they can ask the system for those if they know the names and the names are all in those files. So it's not that hard to figure out what, you know, what those secrets are. Or um, the other thing is, is, you know, just the step of, you know, putting it you know, anyway, it, it, it's kind of convoluted. So the fact that you can um, encrypt the secrets and then, um, you know, you, you put the key on the machine in an environment variable, you can lock that down to some degree. And it, anyway, it makes it a whole lot simpler to keep the stuff that you want to keep secret secret, even if somebody hops onto your machine and is able to, you know, log in. Yeah, and that's definitely a cool aspect uh, about it. And I think from a development standpoint, that's going to be really helpful just because, you know, I don't like having my uh, AWS keys in plain text. You know, if I'm you know, just testing out on my development machine because you can still do a lot of damage with that, mm -hmm. you know, if you get those. So I think from that perspective, it's really cool. And for smaller shops, this is definitely going to be a um, definitely a helpful tool because, you know, have you ever deployed a new application only to have it crash because you didn't have a environment variable or something set? Yeah. You know, or you forgot one of those. So now you can kind of do it all in the development phase of things and not even have to worry about it. So yeah. from that aspect, it's pretty cool. I think on the enterprise level, you know, because once you get into larger shops or where there's a lot more kind of uh, uh, segregation of roles, you know, people don't, developers usually don't have access to production environments. So in that case, you know, the DevOps team is having to give you the secrets to maintain you know, within the Rails application, you know, because it's going into this encrypted secrets. So there, the DevOps person is either going to have to pull down the Rails application, edit the secrets file, and then push a, uh, make a merge request back into the Rails application, or they're going to have to give the key to the developer to do. So I can see where that kind of creates, starts to create some conflicting uh, roles there. Uh, and just managing the secrets. But I think for the most part, uh, it's definitely a great move forward. And it reminds me a lot of the Ansible vaults. So uh, the Ansible vaults is basically where you can check into your code repo the uh, secrets or passwords as well, but it just stores it in a separate encrypted file. Except you don't have a key file, you actually have to have a password that you type in. And so it really works along much along the same lines, except the secrets file in Rails 5.1.0. It, uh, it requires you to kind of have like a console editor like VI, Nano, um, Emacs or whatever that it'll open up, decrypt the file and open it up. And as soon as you close it, it re-encrypts it. So you never have to worry about it just kind of sitting out there in plain text. Yep. Well, and I just also remember the nightmare, right, of like setting up on Heroku even where you, you put everything into environment variables. And so yeah. then it's it's OK. Well, I have the database name and the database um, user name and the database password. And then I'm also running something over on um, Mongo hosting. I don't remember what it is. MongoHQ.com, I think. And so then I have like three or four keys for that. And then I have you know, a couple of keys for AWS and I've got keys for, you know, and so you have like a dozen or two dozen of these things. And yeah, just to be able to put them all in one file and just look and check and know that they're all there, you know, and then have them encrypted when you uh, commit them to your repo so that they're there. You don't have to do anything other than just deploy it up and then make sure that the key is on the other end. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that definitely is a, uh, you know, definitely reduces the risk for human error, which I think is a good thing in a, in many cases. So, yeah, I think it's a welcome change. Yep. Let's see. What other new things do they have? Yeah, there were a lot of uh, new features that didn't make it into the main blog post that you know I kind of dug around and found in the change logs. And one of them was the support. And you know I still use MySQL uh, or MariaDB quite a bit, but the virtual columns. Uh, and I think that's going to be you know pretty cool to where. You know, it's, it kind of plays on to our other talk about the sword procedures that we had with the uh, the DB guy mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Yeah, Carlos. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I couldn't remember his name. But, you know, being able to uh, offload from your Rails application from doing some kind of calculations and putting on the SQL side, you know, and having it available just as a attribute that you can call on with, uh, within the Rails side. I think it makes the code a lot cleaner while still giving you that performance boost and the flexibility uh, from your SQL side. So... That's that was a really cool thing. I was excited to see that in there. I can't wait to get in there and play around with that a bit more. Yeah, and see, I'm I'm more on the PostgreSQL or using something like Mongoid or something. And so I, it, for me, typically it's not as much of a thing that I'm getting excited about. But at the same time, um, just realizing that you know it, it's there if people need it and. A lot of people are using MySQL, and so I'm glad to see that they're supporting options. Um, and and mainly for me, the more options you have, the you know the better you can solve your problems. So now you have this other option, you can look at it and say, well, you know what, I really do need that feature in MySQL, so I'm going to pick that instead of going with uh, Postgres or something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I I find that most of these database options, I mean, they'll sol- solve eighty to ninety percent of your problems. Any of them will. Um, just depending on how you want to structure your data and how you want to think about the way that it all connects. But, you know, if there's one feature that one of them has that the other doesn't, then, you know, it's nice to be able to pick that one and just make it work. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it seems like MySQL is catching up with Postgres and some of those kind of features. You know, like uh, MySQL 5.7 added in the JSON data type, you know, and stuff like that, you know, where you can... Um, just a different data type to be able to sort your data so you didn't have to sort as a binary or something. Yep. So, no, I think that's pretty cool. I just, I still can't get over Postgres's, uh, the search, you know, just a case sensitivity and stuff like that. That still just kind of bugs me just having, you know, to find a manual workaround for those kind of things. But, you know, I think that like that bit me one time. I'm like, I hate Postgres, <laughs> <laughs> but that that is my poor logic of why I don't use Postgres. Well, if it matters, then you don't use it. And if it doesn't matter, then you do. Right. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I do miss from Postgres, uh, you know, from not having used it is just a full text search mm-hmm. within there. You know, instead I have to spin up like a elastic search service or something like that to, you know, get that functionality. Yep, absolutely. But, yeah. So just one of those things. Um, yeah, another thing and I don't know how this is really going to affect my day to day, but just the change from uh, eRubinus to eRuby, you know, just for ha- parsing the ERB files. You know, I guess that I don't know if it's going to be a speed increase uh, on the application side, but uh, it, it's nice to see that they have dropped um, eRubis in favor of something that's currently supported or maintained. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I didn't realize that Erubus had been abandoned, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So just seeing that, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, ultimately, yeah, I if it works, I, I'm not that worried about it. And, you know, if it's faster, that's a bonus. But I, I don't know how measurably, um, you know, different it's going to be. So... Yeah, I wasn't like, yay! I was just like, oh, okay. 
Yeah, well, it's good to see that the rail score team is doing that kind of due diligence where they're making sure that if they are using some kind of dependency that it is being maintained and it, you know, um, is going to be almost like kind of future proofing. So I do I do like to I, I like seeing that out of that team. So kudos to them. Yeah, well, the other thing is, is that um yeah, I, I don't want to have to worry about, oh, well, if it's not being maintained, then, um, you know, does it have security issues? I mean, because, you know, my brain goes to the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario is it's not being maintained. Am I going to get hacked? Yeah. And the fact that I can just, oh, OK, you know, they're onto something that's maintained, you know, that that's that makes me happy. Yeah, definitely a, a good move. So, uh, I can't think of any of the other things that they've added in. Um, I, I know there's so much more, but I think those were like the big highlight points. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, the fact that they're still moving ahead, I mean, there's, there's so much discussion around, you know, is, is rails going to still be relevant in, you know, people worry too about, whether or not, uh, you know, DHH, because DHH is very opinionated and a lot of his opinions are things that people just don't agree with or they feel like kind of hold rails back in some ways. And so it's like, OK, well, are they going to move ahead in ways that matter? And I think this yeah. is a pretty clear shout out of, yeah, they they get where things are going. And this is a big step in that direction. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that just because I want something and I would love to see it baked into the Rails core, if it's not a globally beneficial change, then it's going to hurt Rails more so in the long run if you know we add that kind of stuff in. So I think that he does try to keep a... Um, he does do a good job of trying to keep a objective mind on is this going to be globally beneficial to everybody or are we can hit the masses as a global beneficial. So mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, it's really tough to do sometimes, you know, or at least to take a, you know, very specific comp set and make it abstract enough to where it will be globally beneficial. So, you know, it's a tough job. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, anything else that we should uh, hit before we go to picks? Not that I can think of. I mean, we had some good discussions there. Yeah. One thing that did come to mind just briefly was the fact that I, so I just switched. Um, I, I am no longer a Mac person, I guess. Um, you know, I still have the MacBook Pro, but I just set up a new, um, a new desktop machine. And I, I just built it myself because it was way cheaper and I don't get the little canister with 10 million things hanging off of it for, uh, you know, the Mac Pro. Because um, I'm sitting in my office 99% of the time when I'm doing work or doing podcasts. And so what I'm wondering is, is do all of these features work on Windows? Like if I go install Rails 5.1 on Windows, you know, am I going to be able to install Yarn? Am I going to be able to... Um, do some of these other things that are going to work. I mean, Yarn runs on Node, so I'm assuming that it does. But, you know, yeah, some of these other features, are, are they going to work or am I kind of in trouble? Uh, well, you do have a couple of options. You know, I, I would not consider installing Rails on your actual Windows environment as a good option because chances are you're going to be hosting on a um, Unix-style uh, computer, yeah. Debian, CentOS, or whatever else. Um, but there is Bash for Windows, which is available. You know, last year I think it was June uh, in their in one of their big updates in Windows 10, they added Bash for Windows, and I haven't played around with that too much. But it did, it does look very promising, and it's getting better and better. Yeah, it's still a beta so feature, and um, yeah, I mean, uh, I've I've wound up going to three different uh, Microsoft developer conferences last year um, for JavaScript Jabber. They invited us out and um, yeah, it's just been interesting to see that. And I know that that's there. I don't know though, if it has like full on uh, LVM or GCC support, um, you know, for building some of the extensions that rails sometimes depends on depending on what you're doing with it. And I'm also yeah. not sure you know, as far as tooling goes and things like that, just exactly how that's going to work. Um, I, I kind of want to set it up just to see 
what the hangups are these days because I know that it's way better than you know ten years ago when I started doing rails. But yeah, yeah it, it should be interesting, and and I'm always curious. You know, do they do they push a Rails five one zero release and then figure out some of these issues on Windows, or do they have people complaining to them right now for some of these things, and then they go, okay, we'll fix that, and we'll fix that, and we'll fix that, and use the, actually uh, treat them as blockers until they get it out. Yeah. So if you are on a Windows computer, and if you don't want to kind of drink the batch for Windows Kool-Aid just yet, just out of fear for compatibility, then check out Docker. You know, Docker is a yeah. great alternative and uh, actually just recorded a, this past weekend, um, you know, or I guess at the time of this recording, uh, a Docker for Windows intro to where I have a fairly vanilla Rails application using some external sources like MySQL and Redis and just building a Docker file that will be able to install and run your Rails application within uh, Linux containers on your Windows PC, but then you still have access to your application on the Windows side to edit it and use your favorite Sublime text editor, whatever, um, just natively on the Windows computer. And my point with that is with Docker and some of the new features of Rails 5.1.0, you can log into the Docker container, which you can then run your yarn commands and stuff like that to kind of install the dependencies or packages uh, for the different JavaScript libraries. Yep. So, yeah, I actually have VMware uh, workstation on here. So I've actually got a Mac OS and a uh, Ubuntu server set up. And so I'll probably wind up doing um, so, some level of the work on those. But, yeah, I, I really do want to see what the experience is like running Ruby on Windows and just see what, you know, if anything, there are still, you know, where the issues are. Yeah, and before I got a Mac, uh, back in the day, you know, it was a few years ago, I used VirtualBox to virtualize yeah. like a Ubuntu. And then I just create a network share within there uh, to access all the code on my local Windows machine. And then I just kind of transfer it locally on that internal network. So that's how I used to develop my Rails application, but never uh, on a Windows, like solely Windows, without some kind of Linux uh, hypervisor or something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious to see what the hangups are. The other thing, going back to your point about Docker, um, and we should probably just do an episode on Docker at some point, but um, there are actually images out there, so you don't actually have to go out and set up a Docker and edit your Docker file to get PostgreSQL or MySQL running. Um, you can actually just install Docker and then tell it to download and run the Postgres or the MySQL or whatever else Oracle um, Docker container, and it'll pull it down and set it up for you. So yeah, it's it, it, it's it really nice. Easy. And now yeah. we're way off in the weeds. Um, so we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll put a note in to talk about this in the future. But yeah, cool. All right. Well, why don't we do some picks? Uh, do you want to start? Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance, and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance, or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at FreelanceRemoteConf.com. All right. Well, why don't we do some picks? Uh, do you want to start us off with picks? Well, I am done with my picks on power tools. So <laughs> I think I'm all power tooled out. But one pick I have is uh, a program that I found called Minio. And it is basically a Amazon S3 compliant API that you can host yourself. So I was playing around with this on a uh, application that I have just, you know, for my own personal stuff. And it used S3 on my uh, testing environment, my development environment. And the problem I had was I didn't want to push these files up to S3, even in a test bucket, because that costs money. So I'm out of my year free trial 
from AWS, so now it's charging me money. This way, I can have my own locally installed um, S3 compliant API and buckets, and I can just test everything locally without actually having to go out and hit the internet. So it's a pretty cool thing, and it was a drop-in replacement almost for my uh, Rails application. So it's pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, speaking of that, um, there was a really interesting talk, and I, I really want to dig into it some more, but there was a talk at JS Remote Conf, um, and this isn't AWS specific, but uh, they have a system called Lambda. Um, I mean, Azure has Azure Functions, um, there are a handful of other systems out there that do the, the same thing. I, IBM has one. That was what the talk was actually about at JS Remote Conf. But um, he was talking about using these uh, systems for kind of the the one-off um, sort of job queue kind of things that you, you would do. And some people have built their entire application. So um, they have like a really thin uh, web application that just outsources everything to a Lambda function that then integrates with whatever else you have to integrate with on the web. And so I've, I've been looking at a lot of those systems uh, to run some of the things that I want to run. And That's cool. This actually supports Lambda functions. Oh, really? Yeah. So <laughs> check it out. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. That's really cool. But yeah, um, so that that's something that I'm excited about. Um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out because... Um, Lambda only supports Node.js and Python, I think. And so um, I'm trying to figure out how to make the connection um, to Slack with... Because what I want is I want a system that um, I can essentially hit an endpoint and have it invite somebody to a Slack um, group. And so I'm trying okay. to figure out how to make that happen with Node.js. And hmm. uh, it's it's been a little less than obvious... Um, but I haven't spent a ton of time digging into it yet either. So, um, anyway, it should be kind of interesting to see how that all works out. But I, I do like the idea of not having to maintain a system that does it. You know, I just, you know, have my website hit Zapier and have Zapier hit this endpoint and then it just works. So, so yeah, so I'm going to pick that talk and then I'm also going to pick, um, uh, I can't even talk anymore. Um, and then I'm also going to pick uh, AWS Lambda because it's just cool stuff. Cool. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, we'll have some links to some of the resources we mentioned in the show notes about uh, Rube, uh, Rails 5.1. And, uh, yeah, if you have any other questions, uh, put them in the comments, and hopefully we can get you some answers. Yeah, thanks for having me again. All right. Talk to everybody next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.